0: This is the Dyad Podcast, produced by Dyad Strategies, the podcast about research, trends, and critical issues in the fraternity and sorority industry. I'm your host, Gentry McCrary. On July 8, 2020, the Chronicle of Higher Education published a piece entitled, The Campus Confederate Legacy We're Not Talking About. The article was written by Dr. Talby Edmondson, a professor of history at Virginia Tech, So, before you listen any further, stop and go read the article if you haven't already. I was fascinated by Talby's article, not only because of what he found in his archival research into Kappa Alpha's historical ties to white supremacist causes, but because of the genesis of his research. He was challenged to conduct this research into Kappa Alpha Order by the leadership of Kappa Alpha Order. When I read the article, I immediately knew that I wanted to have Talby on the podcast to talk about his research and his experience. In our conversation, we talk about the genesis of the article, what he's found in his research, and some of the problems associated with Kappa Alpha's long association with what Talby calls the Lost Cause Mythology. I hope you enjoy our conversation. All right, Talby Edmondson, welcome to the Dyad Podcast. How are you this afternoon? doing well. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Talby is the author of a recent article that appeared in the Chronicle of Higher Education uh, related to the history of the Kappa Alpha order and their connection to, uh, as Talby states, the, the lost cause ideology. So given everything that's going on in the industry right now around conversations about diversity and inclusion, Uh, His research is is certainly relevant to what our colleges and and universities are dealing with. So really, really appreciate you coming on. I I read your article with great fascination, uh, and I want to start out today by talking through the context of how that article came to be. You allude to it a little bit in in the article that you you made a comment in a class uh, about K.A., this results in kind of a cease and desist lawsuit threatening letter and, and culminates in a, a it sounds like a pretty tense face to face meeting with, with Larry Weiss. I'm, I'm fascinated just to hear how all of this came about. So kind of walk us through that.
1: Okay. Yeah. So the, the chronicle, you know, the piece that I wrote for that, it's, it, it's really like a, a multi-year process. So the incident begins in 2017 and at the time I was a doctoral candidate. I was in my final semester, or what I thought was my final semester of my PhD work. I was editing, trying to set a, a defense date, but I was also teaching for the history department. Um, and I was teaching a, an upper class Civil War and Reconstruction class. Um, you know, it, It's a good course, it's a big course. You know, We have lots of students, lots of students that are interested in, in getting into the field, right? You know, whether they're gonna work in museums or be even secondary school teachers, or maybe they're gonna go to grad school. So part of the conversation that I always have with them and the work that I do with these students is to understand these organizations in that field, in the Civil War, or regarding the Old South and slavery, right, that are going to be antagonistic, you know, to these, to, I guess, the more accurate historical work or, what, or the work that historians are doing. They're very invested in the, in the Lost Cause mythology. They're very invested in glorifying Confederates. Um, you know, they usually celebrate the monuments that we see falling down. And they usually push these very we'll say misleading and dishonest narratives of the civil war and in that conversation that started this as i was talking about these organizations some of them you might be recognizable like the united daughters of the confederacy right they're largely responsible for building these monuments that we see on the landscape now especially in public places like courthouses that are that are coming down and that are being protested another group was the sons of confederate veterans so the comment that i make and it was a comment that honestly took like a second and a half of class time that was it right you know it just kind of came to me, it wasn't planned, you know, I wasn't making a joke, I just made this kind of offhand remark, comparing the Kappa Alpha Order to the UDC, or the Sons of Confederate Veterans, and I said that they would be an organization that's going to either debate you or be antagonistic to any kind of honest conversations about Robert E. Lee and his thorough commitment, right, to white supremacy, whether as a slaveholder or in the post-war period. And so I make that comment, and, you know, I said something, you know, that these narratives have been a tool of white supremacy and white nationalism, you know, that's their history. And I move on, a second and a half, it's gone, the, que- the you know, the comments over. It's just a I, comment
0: I, you made in class.
1: Yeah, it was a comment I made in class off the cuff, you know, just kind of a, a little quip and I move on. Two days later, you know, I sit down in my, in my office after teaching and I have this, this email, you know, in the subject heading, huge capital letters, it's all caps, you know, you know, Talby, Professor Talby Edmondson, you know, uh, guilty of defamation against the Kappa Alpha order. And when I looked at it, I was like, you know, this is what in the world? Like, I remember that I said something a couple of days ago, but, you know, defamation, you know, that's, that's pretty extreme. So when I brought it up, there's this long, sprawling letter saying that I, you know, as I, I mentioned in the Chronicle piece that I had cast aspersions, you know, on the organization, they, they say that I was guilty of slander, Um, as you read on, like they, they mentioned, you know, something that the university president at Virginia Tech had said about hate speech. And they're like mentioning me kind of alluding to the fact that I might've engaged in hate speech against them, which is a ludicrous claim. And then throughout the letter, you know, they start kind of backing up these, these claims um, with the weight of their alumni and saying that, Uh, you know, trying to put pressure on me, trying to say that, you know, we, some of our our former alumni, our brothers at at Virginia Tech are some of the biggest donors to the university, some are members of the board of trustees, some, there's a building name after one of them or something, you know, so the threat was clear, you know, even if it wasn't just kind of spelled out directly, they were definitely trying to use the weight of those, of those donors and their alumni to try to force me into this like very public retraction and apology that they wanted for this, again, second and a half little quip that came up in my class um, that I didn't plan for or think twice about. I just kind of said it. And in case you were wondering, you know, they were going to help me write the apology that I was to Of course.
0: To. <laughs> <laughs> they are very chivalrous, so that was very yeah. nice of them. <laughs> uh, and they wanted to have a meeting. Um, so, it, it, you know, Wait, I, so I re- Before the meeting, who actually wrote the letter? Who, who was the author of this letter?
1: Um, you know, I don't know their, their chapter president was whose name was signed to it. And one of the concerning things that really set in with me is I think that there were other members that were signed to it, but there was a whole slew of people that were copied on the email. It went to Larry Weiss in the national organization. It went to a dean. It went to some staff members here, you know, some administrators at Virginia Tech, and it went out into the community of like local KA alumni, one of which was a lawyer, two of them kind of prominent, you know, you know, figures here. Um, In the communities working at some of the the bigger organizations around and so my first thought was like, you know, holy cow, you know They're they're sending us out to people in Blacksburg, you know implying that I'm guilty of hate speech, right? Um, And even in 2017, I mean, this is it was risky. So I was like, okay I gotta I gotta take this slow Contacted my PhD advisor and she helped us kind of Work out very slowly. We talked to the chair then we talked to the dean of the graduate school and then it, it just kind of gets in this weird area where some bad decisions were made on the part of the Dean and, you know, trying, I think what the Dean was trying to do was try to simmer tensions. Sure. But was the Dean was kind of automatically assuming that they deserved right this time that was going to be dedicated to this meeting. And so advised me to take the meeting. And so, um, I emailed him back and, you know, I, I kind of copied and listed everybody that I wanted on my side to be there, you know, at the, at the meeting, you know, and uh said that we would just kind of work through it i had no intention of you know going in there and apologizing um i did you know kind of say i'll go in here and kind of clarify some things about where these comments came from and why i said them and i clarified you know that I, i wasn't trying to single out any single person of the virginia tech chapter or even the virginia tech chapter it was more a comment that was about you know the national organization its history and its reputation
0: within the context of other organizations that you were talking about you didn't even single out ka you it was within the context of talking about daughters of the confederacy sons of of confederate veterans so yeah so the dean wants to settle tensions he wants to kind of uh, not placate but you know get get everyone on the same page so you you agree to take the meeting How, how long was this meeting uh when did it take place in relation to the initial comments in the email how, how much time um, so, transpired yeah the initial
1: it takes place a couple weeks later so this okay. is like october at this point um and I, I think as far as i can remember it was like 90 to 120 minutes long um they the national organization did honor the time limits that was set on it um but you know it's still nothing in nothing with the meeting really happened in good faith <laughs> uh, is one way to put it and it comes this kind of you know hot situation Um, in which, you know, I didn't know who was, I can't really remember who was supposed to be there because there was a whole litany of people that they said was gonna be there. But they brought a a lot of people from the national organization down, not just Larry Weiss. Um, There were some alumni in there, the lawyer that I mentioned was in there. And, you know, his kind of role in the whole thing was playing like, for lack of a better word, the bad cop, you know, so like if me and Larry were speaking to each other and it appeared that there was gonna be like any ground between us that we were gonna work on, Uh, This lawyer would just explode, you know, slamming his hands down on the table, saying he wasn't here to hear excuses, you know, saying, you know, implying, you know, throwing, sling these vaguely, these very thinly, thin threats to me that he was going to take some kind of action, you know, if if I didn't apologize and rectify the situation that they saw or however they saw fit. Um, So he was pretty explosive. um, And it starts pretty immediately, sets the tone. I mean, the first person that really spoke was my chair of the history department. And he was trying to explain explain like, look, Talby is, you know, he's almost done with his PhD. He conducts research in this area. Like we, he's teaching this upper level, you know, civil war class, not because he's just some random person off the street that we're gonna let teach, right? That content at a major American university. Like he knows what he's talking about. And as soon as like that conversation happens, the lawyer goes off the handle, um, says he's, again, not listening to excuses, declares very loudly that he is a Southern gentleman um which is hilarious in some ways <laughs> um and that's that really kind of set it from there nothing so, really so
0: far all that's happened has just given further credence to the point that you made in class so sure.
1: yeah i mean and you know we we did try to have conversations about what this history means and they at least acted like they had some interest in that and wanted to pursue it to, to pursue conversations further about it um but you know nobody ever did um and it, it was really it just seemed to me, I mean, it was all about retaliation and trying to make me be quiet. So was I,
0: there yeah. was there tenor in this meeting that you've said things that aren't true? You've said things you can't prove, like what what was the basis other than just accusing you of slander or or mm-hmm. or, or other legal jargon that they threw around? What was the what was the underlying basis of the argument that that that, that they were trying to make? Well, it becomes
1: that it definitely becomes that I had made claims that weren't true. So, I mean, at first it was all about kind of like I was saying just a second ago um, about that I had singled out the students of the Virginia Tech chapter and their alumni and that I called them directly racists. And that was a shot at their you know, credibility or their reputation. So that's where the defamation comes from. Um, I didn't do that. And I clarified that numerous times and they kept saying it. And there was a lot of kind of self-victimization going on. The students that were in the room, you know, were saying that they didn't feel safe to walk across campus wearing their letters because of things that I had said because of some retaliation from other professors or something that who knows how they could have actually heard about any of this. so there, it starts that way. And as the conversation develops, it, it leans into me talking about this history that I was connecting them to, especially those organizations and this use of the lost cause mythology um, and this kind of celebration of Robert E. Lee for white supremacist purposes. And by the end of the meeting, nothing had really happened um, um, other than just a lot of conversation, some of it heated. Um, I hadn't budged, you know, they hadn't really budged and Larry Weiss just asked me point blank and says, You know, you've said in this meeting that you can, that you believe or that you can connect Kappa Alpha Order to a history of supporting white supremacist causes. I think that was the phrase. And so I said, yes. And then he looked at my advisor, asked her, um, and she had worked with me on, you know, my, all of my projects at that point and says, yes, he can, he can do it. This is his field. And that was the end of the conversation. He looks at the dean, suggests that I do it, and the dean agreed that I would, that I would do that. And then I was, had this research program or project just kind of dropped in my lap.
0: And off I went for the next several weeks to, to do it. <laughs> As you're writing your dissertation, you are, you are mandated by your dean to pause your actual line of research to engage in this total other branch in order to placate Larry Weiss. Absolutely. Um, and it, it does have an effect. So I, I
1: couldn't, I didn't actually get to defend my dissertation that semester. Um, I couldn't finish it because I was doing all this other research and, you know, in these weeks leading up to the, to the next meeting that I was supposed to have with Larry Weiss and this alumni, um, a local alumni that we were going to discuss what I found and then to see, you know, if they're going to pursue any type of action against me or if I'm going to apologize. Um, you know, the, the students and the lawyer and some of their faculty advisors are still just slinging messages and emails at me, you know, demanding that I do it, that I still need to apologize. I and mean, it, was, it was harassment, you know, is what it was. And it did knock me off of my track to do my dissertation. I had to reschedule it, um, or actually just straight schedule it and finish my edits over Christmas break for the beginning of the, the spring semester. And my funding had ran out at that point. I had to pay out of pocket for the credit hour, you know, to defend it. Um, minor minor
0: of, inconvenience. Yeah, minor inconvenience, sure. <laughs> so so I, as I'm reading the article and you've set the stage – well, before I ask this question, I want to get into your your research process. You, you talked about going to the archives. Mm-hmm. What was your source material for the article? And, and and did ka did Larry open up the archives of ka? Were you allowed to access their archives, old Kappa Alpha Journal articles? Like, tell me tell me about the source material from from the research. Good question. And I
1: have a, a recent email that Larry sent in response to some of my articles about, about that process. Um, and so it begins with we're in the first meeting and they are kind of asking me or, you know, imploring me to read the varlet, which is their student handbook, um, you know, where they kind of outlay their history and their principles, um, you know, and, uh, you know, a lot of just the ceremonial stuff, you know, and, the, uh, you know, that fraternities have. Um, And certainly there's a lot of stuff in there about Robert E. Lee, about their whole, like, chivalric tradition with these medieval knights um, and these principles of devotion to womanhood and gentility and, you know, how Robert E. Lee was, you know, seen by the early KAs as this this perfect exemplar of, of knighthood and Southern gentleman, right? And so all these codes of honor are in there, and that's what they're asking me to read first. So when I leave, that's the first thing that I actually access and I read it. Um, turns out, it's very lost cause-driven. Um, it, it does more to underscore anything that I'm going to argue than it, than it doesn't.
0: Um, no mention of any of the negative aspects of Lee's tenure at Washington and Lee, his problematic uh, policy positions, even following the war. That's that's always been the fascinating argument to the to me for not just K.A. specifically, but Lee apologists in general is that oh well, no, we we celebrate the person he was after the war, as if his record. Mm-hmm were spotless but as you point out in some of your work his his work opposing the Freedmen's Bureau the the open mm-hmm. harassment that was taking place in the community under his watch of particularly African-american females like mm-hmm. he still has a very spotty record on race even if you take the Civil War and his leadership of the Confederate Army out of the question but there's no contextualization of that I'm guessing I've not looked at the varlet recently I probably had a copy in my office one time at one point when I was working on college campuses with fraternities. But, but I'm guessing there was no mention of any of that stuff when it came to talking about their spiritual founder.
1: No, it certainly doesn't mention anything before or after the war. I mean, it's very rose colored glasses. I mean, there, there's nothing negative about him. And like you said, I mean, yeah, Lee was a pretty terrible person, you know, just to put that out there. I mean, <laughs> the historical scholarship on Robert E. Lee over the past three decades has outlined that very thoroughly you know, like you mentioned, I mean, he allows Lexington, Virginia, and during his tenure at Washington and Lee to turn into, you know, just a, a site of racial terrorism, you know, being carried out by his students and some some locals and former Confederates, and also the students at the Virginia Military Institute next door. Um, and even, you know, personally, if you're, if you're going to try to look to, to some of the things that they write about Lee being gracious and kind, you know, and this kind of Christian moral leader, I mean, if anything, I mean, Lee is... Incredibly dishonest, you know, when he's brought before the Reconstruction government, you know, on what the intentions of of Southern states are. He only supports reconciliation, you know, if it's done on white Southerners, former Confederates terms, always to the detriment of African-Americans. And, you know, even at Washington and Lee, students commented on that he's prone to fits of anger, like he beats up his horse, you know, at one point, you know, there's a record. Um, So, I mean, Lee, by and large, is a terrible role model for anybody. You know, even if you take the whole splitting the the U.S. apart to found a, a slaveholders republic, you know, out of it, he's still a pretty bad guy. Um, and nothing that they that they say about the Lee and the Varlet, or the version of Lee and the Varlet, um, it reflects the reality of the man. Um, and it it really is that version of Lee is just kind of a a lost cause product. You know, it comes right from that period in the in following Lee's death in 1870, where he becomes you know not just heavily ven- venerated, but, you know, almost deified, right? He's kind of, people are writing these hagiographies about him, like he's a patron saint of the South, you know? Um, and that's really where that version of Lee
0: comes from. He is the icon of, of the Lost Cause ideology.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. He's its, he's its most notable exemplar. There's some others, um, even in the historical stuff, they talked more about Stonewall Jackson, who has connections to, to Lexington. You know, he's buried in the cemetery there. Um, but the early Kappa Alpha Journal, you know, was filled with these kind of Confederate glorifications, um, not just about Lee, but in general, but certainly Lee's he's mentioned in every single one. Uh, there's poems, there's toasts, there's prayers, there's all kinds of things.
0: You know, so, so you're given the varlet. That's your first piece of source material. Mm-hmm. You respond, as I suspect you would, like, OK, this is at best a whitewashing of, of history and, and at worst outright dishonesty. Where do you go from there? So, I mean, at first, and I, I
1: knew that I only had a couple weeks here before we scheduled another meeting, and I was still getting these, these emails, and I'm still trying to do my dissertation at this point. Like, I'm still like, okay, now i got to really – This is
0: just know. a side project for you at this point.
1: <laughs> yeah, I really got to get this done so I can get back to what, you know, I'm supposed to be doing during all of this. <clears throat> so, it starts with just some internet searches. And I see that, you know, they have a journal, the Kappa Alpha Journal, that's published, you know, it's their official publication. It's published internally. And I can see that some versions of that go way back. Um, and again, it's just kind of looking on the, on the Internet. And I can find some that go back to the 1920s to the 1870s, you know, and especially in the early 20th century, they're talking about the Ku Klux Klan. You know, they're saying that, um, well, one of the first big quotes that I found was that the, the journal's editor at the time, William Cavanaugh Dotti, writes that, you know, the Kappa Alpha Order is of contemporaneous origins and an identity of purpose with the Ku Klux Klan. So that pretty much speaks for itself.
0: Not um, even subtle.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's not subtle at all. And, you know, if I if I remember correctly, I think Larry's trying to tell me in the second meeting that I have that Dottie was not even a member of the fraternity. But when I kept looking, you know, Dottie was affiliated with, like, um, S. Z. Ammon, which was one of the founders, right, of the organization. He is uh, talking to Thomas Dixon, author of The Clansman, you know, that's turning on the birth of a nation, who's kind of its most prominent alumni that it follows constantly. And he's still producing these publications that are going to the members, right, both alumni and active members to read, because he's the editor, right? He's, he's deeming what he thinks that, you know, Kappa Alphas need to see.
0: Right, and hear and how to understand themselves and and, and and the national organization has given him that title, right? So your mm-hmm. challenge is to find proof that the organization has endorsed <laughs> white supremacy. And that's that's a that's a pretty shut and dry case. We have our national publication tying our history and our founding to that of the Ku Klux Klan, mm-hmm. regardless of who actually wrote that article, it went out in the journal, right? Like right. their journal. Um
1: now, it's, not a, it's, it's common, it, it, the, the KKK was mentioned numerous times over the journals. And this will lead me to at least kind of bringing this up. So when the, the Globe article published yesterday, um, there was at least one thing in there that Larry took issue with, and he, he emailed the, the journalist that wrote it and said that he wanted a correction saying that I did not actually research in the Kappa Alpha archives, right? the ones that Washington and Lee, um, in Lexington and that's true they did mention to me like in that first meeting they offered you know come up talk to people at at our university um take a look around you know and um, i can't imagine that now once they saw uh you know what i was finding in this research that they were going to allow me to do that to
0: open (laughs) the vault
1: (laughs) yeah i would be very skeptical like if i actually went to wnl and started doing the research i'd be very skeptical about what i was seeing that they would allow me to see. But after he asked for this correction, which is technically true. I mean, if it can be read that way, like um, I didn't actually research at WNL. What I did was even after this meeting, as I kept the research going, I realized that I had found something important, not just a compelling story about a national fraternity, but something that, you know, an argument that I can actually make about the lost cause in general, using them as the lens to do so. So it's like big for my field. So I kept the research going and I found, you know, an archive at UVA, the University of Virginia. Um, Like in their special collections, that's like all of their their journals from like the 1870s to the 1960s. Um, There's also some at the Hathi Trust, which I use as well as an archive. And there's these internal histories, you know, that were published by the Kappa Alpha Order, you know, in the late 19th century and the early 20th century. And so that was really my source material for finding this. So, you know, I've read all of the publicly available Kappa Alpha journals from like the 1870s to the 60s, and even some beyond as I can get access to them you know, that they, that they post now. So Larry sends this email, you know, questioning these archives. Um, and I'll read it, you know, he said, um, he's basically uses like three paragraphs to call me a fraud, is <laughs> what, what he does. Um, <clears throat> he says, when I met Edmondson and as a reference, I offered an opportunity to review items from our archives and advised him that our documentation and primary sources would be far superior to what he could access. Edmondson relies on citations from several authors, some of whom rely on subjective rather than objective evaluation, some propose qualified or false narratives, and some of whom have an analysis more textured than what Dr. Edmondson has presented, none of which were properly cited, and many of which seem to have been gleaned from undocumented Internet sources. So he's basically saying that I'm – and he uses this word next. He says, you know, any narrative desire can be conjured up using half sentences and cherry-picked secondary sources. Of course. So he's calling me the cherry-picker. And like, that is just so much projection (laughs) from from Larry. (laughs) Um, And this kind of goes back to a a comment that we just had in the last question um, about this kind of mythological Lee. Uh, And so Larry definitely cherry picks. Um, I know this because he very helpfully created a paper trail of doing so for for me. Um, Like whenever I give them the first research that I have found, Uh, he writes this rebuttal, him and I don't know who was involved in it, but his name is on it. They write this rebuttal to the stuff that was in it. And one of those rebuttals was that Lee didn't even like slavery. Lee opposed slavery. And that's patently false. And they use this quote. And it's a very specific quote. And I bring this up because it's the definition of cherry picking. Um, He says that Lee uh, thought that slavery was a moral and political evil, because there is this letter that Robert E. Lee writes to his wife in the 18, or the 1850s, sorry, and he says those words. It's in the middle of a sentence says, you know, uh, this institution, moral and political evil. And so they include that in their rebuttal, just that, right? But if you read on, right, you can actually see just in the next three or four sentences exactly what Robert E. Lee meant, because he says that slavery was a moral and political evil for white people and to the benefit of African Americans. And then he goes on to say that slavery, was necessary in order to maintain white supremacy, right? To keep African Americans subjugated in the United States. Basically saying that because black people exist in America, they need slavery, right? So, you know, this quote that they use where he uses the words uh, moral and political evil, I mean, I can't imagine cherry picking anything more than that because all you have to do is read like just a couple more sentences, like 50 more words, and you can see exactly what Lee's talking about. And it's amazing to me that they didn't think I I had actually encountered that before because it's pretty common.
0: (laughs) And and that's my, when I read the article and I was just, you know, just jaw on the floor and it's like, okay, either they had no idea this information was out there, which Mm -hmm. seems unlikely, or there was so much hubris that they just didn't think you were bright enough to find it. Or yeah, they I, didn't care, or they were just being vindictive and, and, right. and making you chase this white rabbit uh, just, to, just to be mean. And I don't know which is worse, that they were ignorant of these facts, yeah. which seems unlikely, that they just didn't think you could find them, which also seems unlikely. Or, mm-hmm. as you stated earlier, a doctoral candidate at a prestigious American university who's been entrusted to teach a, a major undergraduate course – or they were just doing this to be mean and vindictive, which seems maybe the most likely scenario of, of the three.
1: Yeah, I went round and round in my head about that exact question. Um, and it, it's, I kind of reflect on the the first meeting. So I guess I should also say, I mean, maybe for a few reasons, maybe just credibility, but it's also insight into the research process, like you were asking about, is that you know, I wasn't just teaching a Civil War and Reconstruction class, you know, my research specializations are actually in the lost cause. Like, my dissertation that I was trying to finish was on, you know, the, the long influence of Gone with the Wind, right, and its usages, how it was used, that narrative for, you know, kind of white nationalist purposes um, in the, the mid to late 20th century. So uh, they never bothered to ask me that. Um, you know, whenever, like I said, you know, whenever the chair was kind of trying to get into this, um, with them, the, the lawyer threw off, flew off the handle and said he wasn't accepting any excuses. And so we never really got there. Um, and so in a weird way, like one of the kind of ironies is that, you know, they, they end up asking like the best person, one of the best people that could conduct this research to do it, you know, or worse if you're them. Right. Um, I was certainly—it's you know—it boggles my mind that you know they would that they would just look around and think, "All right, I'm going to ask this, you know, this person that you just described to research my Confederate flag waving organization," um, and thought that that was
0: going to end well. So, I want to talk a little bit about the research, and and obviously you were limited in the number of words you could publish in an article in the Chronicle of Higher Education there's probably a lot of other material that's there and dots that 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 you've connected as you've as you've gone down this rabbit hole i want to start and i'm fascinated by the connections between the modern day kappa alpha order and this this prebellum organization ku klux um, in your research what are the the connections between ku klux Adelphan, the ku klux Klan, and and the Kappa Alpha Order as we know it now.
1: Okay, yeah, that's a good question, and that's a tricky one, um, honestly, uh, because so much of my research that you know I was doing is I, I was really looking at how the organization, the you know the new Kappa Alpha Order, views itself, you know, historically. Sure. Um, kind of tracking down these principles and this this celebration of the Confederacy that they do, and trying to find its origins. Um, So I can't, I could never really find like this connection. Like you're just trying to like, you know, pin dots and draw a string between like this person and this organization. Like, you know, once Ku Klux you know, phased out during the civil war, then they reappeared right in the post-war period. No direct dots
0: between the two. Yeah,
1: it's not really there. But what there is, is in the early K.A. journals and these documents that they're writing is this kind of debate that's going on about how much they were influenced by that original K.A. or the K.A. of the Old South. And so what I see, right, you know, and certainly, you know, the, the current edition of the Barlet actually, you know, spells this out and says that their founders, you know, chose the K.A. insignia, like I write, just because of the name recognition. So there is some name recognition of Kukukos of Adolfan. And, you know, but this debate, uh, you know, they, you know, that they have ongoing is, is how much they can actually claim that mantle or that kind of historical heritage, right? Because they wanted to, for some of them. Some of them were saying, you know, um, and this is really how the debate goes. Some were saying that, yes, we, uh, we're influenced by them or we're inspired by them, but it's in name only, right? We can't really draw those connections between it. But there were still others that were writing these editorials in the Kappa Alpha Journal who were saying we can absolutely claim it because they're saying that, you know, the original K.A. was also the Ku Klux Klan and we're both, so, <laughs> you know, that's what they're, that's what they're saying. Um, or that they're related to both, you know? So they're saying that they're either made in this image, you know, of the original Ku Klux Adolfan or that, you know, they do have these, very spurious connections to it. Um, it would take some, some different archives to, to really make those connections, but you can see very clearly with, with the Kappa Alpha order as it becomes, you know, they, they do kind of see themselves as, a, as kind of a, a distant relative, so to speak. You know, and for some of them, that's how they saw the clan. Others said, you know, obviously we contributed to the Ku Klux Klan. So you can see that they are, like Larry says, I'm only presenting one side, but there are multiple sides. They're just debating how close they were actually to it. And this is a debate
0: amongst the membership, right? So there are at least well-documented sources of members who feel a direct linkage between the organization's founding and principles and sympathies and those of the Ku Klux Klan.
1: Yeah. And I mean, even one person, you know, one of like prominent alumni held like a political office in Louisiana was writing and said like, you know, we've had this debate, you know, over and over in these pages, but of course we're related to the Ku Klux Klan and Ku Klux Adafon. And then he says, but of course we can't write that out loud, (laughs) you know, and say it. So they're like actually acknowledging, right? That they, that they kind of have to hide this, this kind of historical connection um, and speaking about it honestly, because in the 20th century, I mean, it's going to be to where, you know, you're seeing that become less popular, right? There's going to be public, ent- public opinion is going to turn against outright lynchings and displays of racism to some degree. So they recognize those changes too. And you can actually see those changes playing out in the way that they talk about themselves.
0: At- at no point, and this is what fascinates me, the the posture of the organization is so defensive, and even in the face of the irrefutable evidence that you've provided, uh, at least establishing that there's a direct link between membership sympathies between the founders of the organization and the early members of the organization, at least up through the 1920s, uh, and the, the the sympathies of the Ku Klux Klan, a very well established historical record about Robert E Lee and 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 some of his problematic attitudes related to white supremacy i've not seen any acknowledgement of of any of that come from ka leadership I, and I, I may have missed it but it, everything that i've seen every statement every every quote in an article is is basically a defensive posture and a almost a revisionist history uh, way of of talking about these issues. Is that is that your interpretation as well?
1: Yeah, it's my interpretation. I mean, that's that kind of sums up how I dealt with them too. It was very defensive, especially so. Like like I said, whenever they were still trying to push me into doing this big public apology, and Larry had sent me on my way with this new this new research project. Project is. Um, that they had continued to send those those harassing emails. and But as soon as I gave them, and this is one thing, I mean, I, I can say Larry never operated in good faith um, with me, is he was allowing that to go on. He saw all those emails. He saw that they were being delivered to me. But as soon as I gave them, right, the first glimmers of what I was finding in my research, it stopped just like that. And then it became a very defensive posture. he wanted... They wanted another meeting, so we scheduled that. And then we had a couple exchanges. My PhD advisor, who I'm very thankful for, um, she kind of stepped in and was like the, the go-between. She was the point contact to try to protect me right, from having to deal with it. And I sent them some articles you know, that I assigned to my classes you know, that I just had on my computer to kind of explain this lost cause you know, and to contextualize some of the things that I was finding in their journals and in their materials. And then they just kind of drop off the face of the earth for a couple of weeks. Never heard from Larry, you know, again, until this second meeting that we had scheduled um, was supposed to happen. And again, nothing in good faith. You know, it was the day of that meeting. It was actually like an hour, maybe an hour and a half before the meeting was supposed to take place. And then we finally get an email from Larry, you know, and this other alumni who we had agreed that would be there it was gonna be me, my advisor, Larry Weiss, and this, uh, this, this other alumni and we were going to discuss the research and they dropped that rebuttal that I mentioned earlier on us just an hour before we were supposed to meet which I'm guessing was to give me no time to prepare for it um, and to be able to refute it when we actually got in there because again it was it was filled with these cherry-picked things and excuses um, that they were making it, it didn't grapple honestly with any of the historical sources that I gave them the secondary sources
0: um, Zero acknowledgement that anything that you had said in your original report had, had any shred of truth to it. No. They, they, Everything they rebutted.
1: Everything was rebutted. You know, and Our, our I- record
0: on race is spotless and clean, <laughs> and there is zero connection between our organization and any sympathies with a, a white supremacist or, or lost cause ideology.
1: Yeah, and it flies in the face of all historical writing, since, scholarship since the last three to four decades. Um, and so again, like they had never bothered to ask me why I was teaching that class, but I knew that scholarship pretty well. Um, and they also dropped on us. So they kind of bombarded us. They were bringing another historian with them from Washington and Lee, was a military historian. He didn't really matter. He was like out of his, um, he was out of his element, you know, and they're talking about this stuff, but they, we hadn't agreed on him. They didn't abide by the terms that we had agreed on. And they just tried to surprise us right before. And if you know anything about the location of Lexington and Blacksburg in Virginia, you know, they're about an hour and a half apart straight down I-81. So, you know, they were like on their way before Larry even decided to send us that information.
0: So how did the second meeting go? Um,
1: You know, so in the first meeting, Larry was pretty cool, calm, and collected. You know, I'll, I'll say that. It was mostly the lawyer and some others that were, you know, kind of instigating the the anger. Um, and I, I kind of always assumed that certainly Larry was, he was allowing this to, to take place um, knowingly. Like I said, you know, he stopped the, the harassment as soon as he saw what I, what I was finding. I never heard from another student or that lawyer again. Um, but you know, the second meeting was kind of a 180, you know, it started out, everybody was calm. We just kind of shake hands. Everybody greets each other. We sit down and we start trying to work through their rebuttal and them just trying to make excuses and neither me nor my advisor really budge on it. We just didn't agree to. And again, this is happening in November at this point. It was like, if memory serves like a Thursday before, um, before Thanksgiving breaks so the campus was mostly empty. They had had some like, like the Kappa Alpha members of the tech chapter had gathered outside of the building you know, it's late in the afternoon. Nobody's there. So it's this very, like, uh, it's, a, it's a situation that nobody should have been in. The dean didn't even come to it, right? And, but, but the dean had requested that this this happen. Um, and just kind of over the course of that, Larry just got more agitated and angry. And at the end, when time had ran out, they at least honor it. But he just gets mad and leaves and storms out and says, I'm going to hear from their rep- representation.
0: Did you ever hear from their representation?
1: no. I would really look forward to the discovery period if I ever <laughs> Uh you're you're how old during all of this by the way? Um at that point so that was 3 years ago, I was 28.
0: You're a 28-year-old doctoral student. Mhm. Wow. Fascinating. So so the the research is what it is, are you are you going to be publishing more? I mean, obviously, there's the Chronicle piece. You were limited in, in how much you could publish in a in a in a publication like that. Are you working on a an article, a book? Like, is this research you're interested in continuing to pursue? It sounds like it's directly linked to your your kind of area of research. So, where where do you go? Yeah, from here? and I, I mean, this kind of reflects to
1: a little bit more on just understanding the Kappa Alpha Order more broadly. Um, certainly, you know, as the situations with you know the southwestern chapters that are that are kind of pushing, or the southwestern university chapter that's pushing back along sure. with some of those, um, or the the Joe Kennedy, Ed Markey, you know, kind of debate that's ongoing, you know, if there's an opportunity to publish, you know, in a public facing another public facing piece, I'll I'll do it. Um, I am currently working on a, a more scholarly version, you know, of this for a for a big. For a big journal because i do think that what i found right and this is again you know they kind of unleashed me into this into this thing into this world that i would have never thought to, to to research but they're like such a perfect representation of what the lost cause mythology is and i can explain that so like you know their principles right they have several so they have the the confederate veneration the southern gentleman because lee is a, the exemplar of the southern gentleman but he's also the chivalric knight right so they kind of take this background you know, of this, which is also fantasy. It's all mythology of the Crusades, you know, saving this Christian homeland. Um, And then they also push these other ideas like, you know, devotion to to womanhood and, you know, gentility. Um, And it's all, again, spelled out right there in the varlet, even in their 2020 version, you know, I think it was published in 2018 um, in the most recent, in the most recent version. So what I kind of already been developing right in my research was the use of lost cause mythology. So pro-Confederate, Confederate Confederate celebration, celebrate Robert E. Lee um, was how it was used uh, or how like that mythology became this kind of underlying like ideology that kind of set up Jim Crow, right? It kind of, it pushes these white nationalist ideas that they saved the South during reconstruction, right? Following the the emancipation of, of, of the slaves. Um, because during Reconstruction and the Klan is kind of the saviors or the heroes of this narrative in the Lost Cause, um, because that African Americans were, were holding office, they were voting, they were pursuing their own political interests, so therefore they were threats to white supremacy, and they were, right? So the narrative in the Lost Cause becomes this kind of white nationalist defense of the Ku Klux Klan or Southern redeemers, as they, as they are called, people who redeemed and saved the South right, in this post-war period, and the amazing thing about KA is not just that they're doing the lost cause, they're actually taking this other mythology of, of this other white nationalist mythology of these medieval chivalric christian night crusaders right that saved the holy land you know in the medieval ages from these infidels muslims or brown people um and applying that to them so they're actually taking the lost cause and grafting it directly over top of another white nationalist mythology and it makes it state very clearly right everything that the lost cause and what it is Um, and so that's really my my argument that i would go forward with in you know the uh Uh, the scholarly publication, but you can also branch off these other, these other principles that they have. So devotion to womanhood, you know, comes from this period in the post-war era era, where this protection of white womanhood was used as a pretense, right, for lynching and the protection of that white Southern homeland, you know, so to speak, you know, so if the Klan or the Redeemers or or lynch mobs are these saviors of, of white, you know, feminine purity, right, that's exactly where it's coming from. And again, this is not something that I'm just Making up or as an interpretive leap, it's written in the Kappa Alpha Journal. You know, one of their, one of their, uh, one of their their night commanders, right? So that's like their national president. Um, it's a it's a prominent you know alumni who's voted into that into that office. A very clannish name. Like that was probably the first thing that jumped off to me was night commander. <laughs> um, you know, he his name was John Temple Graves. You know, he. Uh, was a celebrity he 's another celebrity, just like Thomas Dixon Jr that the Kappa Alpha Journal follows avidly, uh, but he won his fame in being a champion for lynching right in the south like he literally toured the country going on a lecture circuit and giving speeches about the virtues of lynching and says right you know point blank in these speeches that he 's giving is that the lynch mob is the bulwark work, the necessary bulwark between right, these white women and then these black beast rapists, right, to use the kind of trope that is used. And he's so prominent he gets called out by Ida B. Wells, you know, um, but the Cap Alpha Journal is, you know, talking about his his speeches, saying that he gave the most forceful and passionate speech, you know, on the lynching question. And when one of them they say uh, that he reached the same conclusion as brother Thomas Dixon Jr. did in his novels, that we need to separate the races. Right. And then you can look to the Kappa Alpha Journal some more, you know, throughout the years. And they're writing these kind of fantastical stories about their founding, you know, in the post-war period saying that, you know, white women were, were cowering in fear, right, to the freedmen, to the, to these emancipated slaves until they were saved, right, by the Southern gentleman, you know, who they saw themselves as and the Klan. So, you know, essentially we, we focus on this idea that Kappa Alpha is, you know, heavily invested into the Confederacy, but it's not really the direct link to the Confederacy that they have. It's a direct link to redemption and reconstruction um, that really the organization sprang from, that post-war period where, where you know, racial terrorism was was common. And they, they claimed that, you know, as their as their origins.
0: And, and given that history and that context, you were probably the least surprised person when you began your research to see a group of K.A. members from Ole Miss posing with guns in front of the Emmett Till Memorial, sign, yeah, a, a, a young man who was murdered for allegedly, and as mm-hmm. it turns out, probably didn't happen, whistling at a white woman. Uh, yep. Not, not too hard to connect those dots. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, yeah, it's, the, the symbolism is crazy, and it's not, it, it didn't surprise me. Um, it, was, it was shocking, but not a surprise. Um, And I guess, you know, the final point here is, you know, if we're going to focus on K.A., you know, this wouldn't come out in an academic piece or a piece of scholarship. But, you know, some of the debate that they're now having with these other chapters is that we got to renounce the Confederacy and we got to renounce Robert E. Lee. But it's not just Robert E. Lee. It's It's much bigger than that. Yeah, it's the crusade thing, the chivalric knight thing, the devotion to womanhood thing. Um, It's all of it. It's their their principles, you know, in this this kind of history from the ground up um, that the whole thing is rotten.
0: As you look at their response to chapters like the southwestern chapter, like Senator Kennedy and, and and the recent piece in the Boston Globe, what's your just general reaction to how KA National has responded to these chapters who are, are are pushing the organization to at least make some change? Um, kind of
1: kind of mystified by it to be honest. Like some so much of it, and I've talked with my like PhD advisor. We followed it closely because you know we were right there. Um, you know, three years ago with with all of this. And I I don't know, so much of it seems like an unnecessary power battle, you know, between Larry Weiss and these these chapters. Um, One of those chapters, the Southwestern University chapter reached out to me after my article in the Chronicle came out um, and had told me what had happened, that after my article published, they went forward with trying to renounce Robert E. Lee and they got suspended for doing so. Um, and they didn't want to, you know, in their words, and I, I read their original statement, everything that kind of happened, and I, I believe this, they didn't want to like sanitize their message, which is what the nationals were trying to do. Um, they wanted it to, and this is the one thing that I think separates the Southwestern chapter from some of the other ones that I've seen, is that they acknowledged that there was a historical wrong and harm done if they, they wanted to rectify it. And those are necessary steps. And the nationals seem like they have absolutely no interest in doing that. Um, barely. Not
0: only are, are they not interested in doing that, they're not even interested in acknowledging any of the problematic right. aspects. It's a, it's, a, it's a complete position of denial in the face of overwhelming yeah. historical evidence.
1: And I guess what I find curious is that, you know, in the past, you know, even in the 90s and the 2000s, Larry had moved, you know, to ban Confederate uniforms from being used and paraded in. So, like, I don't know why he doesn't see the writing on the wall right now, you know, in this post-George Floyd you know, moment where these monuments and this, this, these, this celebration of Confederates is being not just being challenged, it's coming down.
0: And and if you look at his statement, even this gives you some insight into into Larry's mind. His statement: I was at Alabama when the incident occurred in in two thousand nine, and have my own thoughts on what what happened there. But Larry's statement, as you cited in your article, had to deal with well, we can't. Uh, we can't offend our host institutions and 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 cause offense and and expect to be relevant at no point was there any acknowledgement that it was problematic it was projecting well other people are offended by this so we need to change it it's not yeah actually this is problematic that our members are still parading around campus in confederate uniforms waving confederate battle flags there, there was never an acknowledgement of that it was all about well we can't we can't offend uh, other people and our host institutions and and remain relevant, therefore we're going to make this change. Almost blaming society for forcing them to change instead of acknowledging the very simple fact that maybe parading around campus dressed like Robert E. Lee was not the best thing to do.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, and it, it kind of reflects, like if you read some of their memos, and even in their interactions with me, like in this rebuttal that they write, is that they yeah, I mean, it, it's kind of just this, these were just traditions and they were harmless. You know, that's kind of the what they're pushing. And yes, we've had to change them. And I think like to me, like in that second meeting where he was talking about, and this I think is actually in the rebuttal. So it's written down somewhere too, that, you know, Kappa Alpha has followed the trajectory, right, of American history. And they've grown as, you know, American history has grown to be more welcoming and supportive of racial equality, um, which is, as a historian, that is a, that is a crazy type of, view on the world to take um, because it, it's very whitewashed, you know, quite literally um, you know, they, you know, African-Americans, you know, have been protesting Confederate commemoration since it started, you know? So uh, what it took them to the 1990s to finally do something <laughs> like, you know, and it, and that, that language of just harmless traditions is still reflected. You know, I was actually looking back at the rebuttal, you know, a couple of weeks ago and something that really jumped out to me was that he said like, I don't remember exactly what year this was. It was in the past couple decades that, well, we reviewed how many chapters were actually parading in Confederate regalia. Um, you know, and it said like no more than 20%. Like that was like something I was supposed to think was good that a fifth of your organization <laughs> is engaging in, in Confederate
0: cosplay. Like
1: it's not really the statement that I think that he thought he was making.
0: I, I live in in Tennessee where our governor has some very prominent photographs of his time in ka at auburn uh in his in his lovely confederate uniform so that that played out in the most recent gubernatorial election so no no surprise there And all um, of that came out like after northam in
1: virginia you know the, the blackface of the clan regalia scandal we never found out which one in virginia he was <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh he was i guess he was one of them but then yeah they scoured the yearbooks and so you saw a lot of kappa alpha stuff coming out of those yearbooks as far as blackface and confederate commemoration that was taking and
0: and 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 as my friend Lawrence Ross has discussed he was the least surprised person in the world when when all those images began surfacing because if you've done the research if you've read the history you know those pictures are there right and you know where they're going to come from and there's so many still just floating out there you know waiting to be found absolutely Talby we could talk for forever this has been a fascinating conversation I really appreciate you coming on uh, I think the work you've done is, is important. It really shines a light on uh, some of the issues associated with this uh, fantasizing the, the lost cause ideology and, and, and the analogy in the article that I, I think most resonated with me is that we can't just focus on the monuments. There are living monuments to, to right. this mythology that are, that are living, breathing, and, and, and operating on our campuses. Uh, we can't just tear down a few statues and rename a few buildings and feel like we have dealt with the problem. It it runs much deeper than that. So thank you for, for engaging in this important work, even though it sounds like you were browbeaten and compelled into doing it. It's it's important nonetheless, and, and I think is an important contribution to to the work that, that folks who are engaged in working with fraternities and sororities on college campuses are doing. So good luck uh, as you continue this line of research and, and uh, as you publish more on this, maybe we'll have you back on.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for the conversation. Sometimes it's good to to air this
0: out. (laughs) Thanks so much. Thank you. Since recording this conversation with Talby a few weeks ago, I have listened and re-listened to the recording, trying to decide exactly what I should say in wrapping up this episode. There are a lot of things I want to say. But instead of teeing off on Kappa Alpha leadership for their bullying, denial, and head-in-the-sand approach to their own history, I'm going to try and offer something more constructive. Every single historically white fraternity and sorority has problems when it comes to our own histories on issues related to racial equality and discrimination. Every single one. No one is exempt. But don't take my word for it. Our own undergraduate members are reminding us of this every day. The Abolished Greek Life movement has taken root because of this problematic history. In recent years, many organizations have openly wrestled with their own problematic histories. They've acknowledged these discriminatory policies and practices, and they've begun changing them. And while we have a long way to go, those first steps are really important. We can't make meaningful changes in the future unless we have a full reckoning with our past. My conversation with Talby really helped me understand why I think K.A. is so afraid of acknowledging some of the unsavory aspects of their past. I think they must be afraid that if they acknowledge any of it, they will be forced to acknowledge all of it. Their founding, their values, their policies and practices, things said and written by their past leadership, everything. It's all tied up in this mythology of the lost cause. The entire organization is a house of cards and if you pull out one card, the whole thing may come crashing down. So instead of acknowledging any of these issues, they deny, they minimize, they justify and rationalize, or they just ignore. And to be fair, KA has probably done some really good things in recent years to try and address issues related to diversity and inclusion with their undergraduate members But you can't really address any of these issues until you address the organizational culture that stems from that long problematic history. You can't put a band-aid on this and expect to cure the underlying illness. An organization's history has a profound impact on its present culture, and until you fully acknowledge and address that history, culture change is impossible. So what do we do with this information? If you're a campus professional working with a K.A. chapter, We need to be engaging those students in conversations about these issues, helping them understand their history and the problems with this lost cause mythology and empowering them to address it at the local level. And if you're a member of KA, I hope you'll demand better from your leadership. I know a lot of KA members. Some of my best friends in this world are members of KA and they are not bad people. I know that many of them have privately wrestled with their own questions about the organization's history and culture. And and, and to them I would offer this, if you want your organization to change for the better, and if you're as appalled as I am by Talby's story, then I hope you'll let the leadership of your fraternity know that. In the days since our interview, I've wrestled with the question that I posed to Talby uh, during our interview. Specifically, what did they think would happen when they challenged him to do this research? Were they unaware of what he might find? I think that's unlikely. Did they think he was too stupid to find all this stuff available in publicly available archives? Again, I think that's unlikely. I think the only answer to the question is that they thought they could bully Talby into apologizing for a comment that required no apology. They thought that if enough people sent him enough angry emails and if enough angry lawyers got involved, if enough alumni sent emails to his dean, that Tolby would back down. Cheers to him for not backing down. You've been listening to the Dyad Podcast, produced by Dyad Strategies. Brittany Todd is our production assistant. Our theme music is composed by Magnus Moon. For more information, visit us online at www.dyadstrategies.com.